Hello and welcome to the A to Z of the Future podcast. My name is Alexander Thomas. This is the third episode in our series on transhumanism. We're going to continue our exploration into the so-called three supers of transhumanism by focusing today on superintelligence. That is, the idea that we will create, merge with, or perhaps become entities that have vastly greater cognitive powers than modern humans. We'll begin with author and transhumanist Callum Chen who assesses where artificial intelligence capacities stand right now and how fast they may be set to improve. So today it's really, really impressive, but we're only right at the beginning. And that's because we're on an exponential growth curve. And whenever you're on one of those, however impressive what happened in the past looks, it's like nothing compared to what's going to happen tomorrow. Because in an exponential process, each step is equivalent to the sum of all the previous steps. Today, we have what I think are miracles, like Google Search, Google Translate, Maps. We have machines which can drive cars better than humans. They haven't been released into the wild yet. They're in limited pilot schemes, but they're there. They can do it. And, and to me, these things are miracles. In their most powerful form, they have really appeared since 2012. What happened in 2012 was there was a big bang in AI. Jeff Hinton and some other AI researchers worked out how to get a branch of statistics called machine learning to work in AI, and in particular, a subset of that called deep learning. And deep learning is really what's made the running since 2012, and famously, a deep learning system created by DeepMind, which is a kind of the SAS of deep learning, a bunch of researchers in North London owned by Google. They created a system which beat the world's best ever Go player, and Go is probably our most difficult board game. Prior to 2012, there were some interesting things. I mean, the, a system beat the world's best ever chess player, but it's really come on a lot since the Big Bang in 2012, thanks to deep learning. And we now have these things which are, you know, minor miracles. Siri can go and look anything up you want to know on the internet or on, on Wikipedia and, and give you an answer to most questions. But like I say, we're right at the beginning of the process. And in the next few years, what we're going to get is the self-driving cars in all our major cities and then beyond. Now, we don't know when that's going to happen. It seems to me that we can't be many years off before they're ready for prime time and they're ready to be released as taxi services in all our major cities. So that, I think, will start to happen this decade. And also, we're going to start having conversations with our machines. So GPT is the probably the world's best natural language processing system developed by a company called OpenAI, which is co-founded by Elon Musk, is a remarkably powerful natural language processing system. It can create essays and poems and answer questions at length. Now, the machine doesn't understand what it's doing. It has no consciousness. It has no clue what it's doing. These systems are going to get more and more powerful, and it's going to happen faster and faster. I do think that in 10 years, we'll have machines which can write genre books, for instance, because they'll be able to search the entire search space of a possible story, work out exactly the best way to turn the reader on, and maybe they'll write a different book for each individual reader. So th those sorts of things are going to start happening. You've probably seen a lot about these miracles Callum speaks of here in the news recently, since the release of ChatGPT and GPT-4, and you might have started to hear the term AGI in relation to this. Here's Callum again to explain what this means. ANI stands for Artificial Narrow Intelligence, and AGI stands for Artificial General Intelligence. It's quite simple. An, an AGI is a, an AI which has all the cognitive abilities of an adult human. So it's a general intelligence. It can do a, a wide range of tasks. And ANI is anything short of that. A, a, a narrow intelligence, also known as a weak AI. They're generally, they're super intelligent in one specific area, like they might be super intelligent at arithmetic or playing chess or playing Go, but they're completely rubbish at anything else. Uh, an AGI will be super intelligent, superhuman in many respects, but it's at least human level in, in all the respects that humans can manage. So powerful now, going to get a lot more powerful increasingly quickly, but quite a few years until we get to super intelligence. We'll come back to this notion of artificial general intelligence as we need to think a little more about what it might mean to be human level in all cognitive abilities and why human level is a relevant measure at all. Transhumanist David Pierce will now summarise the notion of superintelligence from the transhumanist perspective by breaking down the different ways superintelligence might emerge. 
Super intelligence. Yes, humans are not the intellectual pinnacle of evolution. We are simply a stepping stone into something better. And transhumanists believe in the creation of full spectrum superintelligence. Intelligence is a contested term, and simply sticking the word super in front of it isn't particularly illuminating. But broadly, there are three main currents, I would say, uh, in the idea of post-human superintelligence. One current, and it's arguably the most radical, suggests that post-human superintelligence won't, won't be humans, but will be our machines. This is the so-called intelligence explosion, that our machines, programmable digital computers, are systematically outperforming us cognitively in a whole host of domains and extrapolating one can imagine some kind of runaway explosion of recursively self-improving software-based AI that leads to intelligence orders of magnitude greater than humans. And this could happen because of the recursively self-improving nature of this hypothetical intelligence in a, in, a, in a space of years, months, or theoretically even days and minutes. That's one scenario, the intelligence explosion. The idea was pioneered by I.J. Good, mathematician in the 1960s. It was uh, developed uh, further by Elisir Yukowski and his team at Miri, and has been authoritatively expounded for a scholarly audience by Nick Bostrom in his book, Superintelligence. A second strand of uh, work on superintelligence is the Kurtzweilian scenario, which envisages some kind of fusion between humans and our machines, so that the distinction is essentially irrelevant. And many Kurtzweilians believe in a so-called mind-uploading scenario. This is the idea that, in principle, you can be scanned, digitized, and uploaded to a less perishable medium. And, yeah, essentially that humans are going to fuse with our machines and extrapolating from the rate of computer processing power, this singularity is sometimes anticipated around about 2045 or the middle of the century. But there is a third conception of superintelligence, full-spectrum superintelligence, and this is the one that I take most seriously. This is the idea that post-human superintelligence will actually be our biological descendants, genetically rewritten, massively AI-augmented, but nonetheless our biological descendants. But essentially, everything that our machines can do can, in principle, be incorporated on a, in, in, in a neurochip. I mean, we are seeing anticipations of this with Elon Musk's Neuralink. But it's essentially, yeah, you can have a neurochip in the brain. So, superintelligence could emerge from a recursively self-designing artificial intelligence or through the fusion of humans and digital technologies. Or, in the third scenario, humans themselves become the superintelligence, albeit genetically modified and potentially augmented by digital technologies embedded within us too. Because of the radical disruption the emergence of a superintelligence would constitute, sometimes the term the singularity is invoked. Here's Beth Singler and Callum Chase to expand on the various ways that term is used. The interesting thing about the singularity is that there is no singular singularity. So when you ask, what is my version of it, it's because there are different versions. Everyone has a different interpretation who's discussing this. I, I don't ascribe to the idea necessarily, but I, I will be able to describe the different forms. And they, you know, they broadly come down to the singularity as the exponential view of the development of artificial intelligence coming to a point at which we can no longer, as humans, really understand its intelligence. So it's, it, it pulls on the cosmological singularity in black hole theory that there is an event horizon beyond which we can't really understand as human beings or observers. So similarly, the technological singularity will exponentially grow. Intelligence bootstraps itself up to a point that we then can't conceive beyond it. And then there's, there's 
that that as an event, as in a moment that happens, that can also be described as the singularity. And then there's also the view of the singularity as an entity. So more commonly, a singular AI that has achieved that level of intelligence. And that is the singularity that people talk about. And then there's also the versions, um, you know, as Elon Musk argues, we should in some way combat that potential uprooting and upheaval of our entire concept of society and civilization by actually becoming part of the singularity. So he argues that the only way to really cope with that intelligence explosion is to be a part of it. So that's more transhumanist view of becoming one with machines. And that's why he's investing so much in mind computer interaction technology and hopefully in his view one day mind uploading completely as well. So that that's broadly four forms of the singularity, but they're probably obviously going to be lots more variations and some people pick up several elements of those as well. The way I view the singularity is simply as a metaphor. It is borrowed from maths and physics and in maths and physics it is a point in a process where a variable becomes infinite and the classic example is a black hole. At the centre of a black hole the gravitational field becomes infinite and what happens then is that the rules of physics stop working. Now, it was first used in the context of human affairs, sociology and technology by a man called John von Neumann, who is one of the founding fathers of modern computing. So I think it's got a, a good intellectual heritage as a metaphor for the biggest kind of change that you can have, total and complete change. So that's, that's the sense in which I use it, total and complete change. And I think there will be two singularities this century, the economic singularity, which is about joblessness, and the technological singularity, which is about superintelligence. Now, the word singularity is interesting because it then was used very famously by a man called Ray Kurzweil. And he deserves great credit, I think, for having made a lot of people, and I'm one of them, take seriously the idea that superintelligence could come in our lifetime. Like a lot of people, I read lots of science fiction when I was younger, still read it now. And superintelligence is a very well-established trope in, in science fiction. But I always thought, insofar as I thought about it, that it wouldn't happen for thousands of years. And he made me think, wow, it could happen in the next sort of several decades, which was a real eye-opener. It was a shocking, in a good way, moment back in 1999 for me. And he, he's done that for a lot of people. To contrast it with the intelligence explosion, I mean, the intelligence explosion is one meaning of the word singularity, one possible meaning of it. But, but it's actually much simpler than that. It's, it's the moment when we create an artificial general intelligence, an AI with all the cognitive abilities of a, an adult human, so a strong AI. And because computers can be improved by expanding them, by improving their architecture, it will continue to become more powerful, much, much faster than humans are. We're, we're increasing our intelligence, but at a very slow rate. It will explode its intelligence. Not only will it carry on expanding and improving because of Moore's law or whatever version of Moore's law is happening at the time, but it will also re-engineer its own architecture. And so rapidly, this AGI, artificial general intelligence, will go on to become a super intelligence much, much smarter than the smartest human that ever lived. And we have no idea what the upper limit is. It might be millions, trillions of times smarter than the smartest human. So that's the intelligence explosion, the transition from AGI to superintelligence. So the notion of the singularity really emphasises the point that if we were to create a superintelligence, it is almost impossible for us to conceive of the implications beyond that point. So when will this event that could change everything take place? There are people who think superintelligence is coming soon. Ray Kurzweil famously says 2029, and then he thinks that we will merge with those supercomputers in 2045. I've never been quite sure what he thinks is going to happen in the 16 years in between. There's a very smart man called Ben Goetzel, who's a prominent AGI researcher. He thinks it could happen in 10 years if we tried hard enough. The biggest survey ever done of AI researchers put the number as, as the sort of median guess uh, in about 40, 50 years from now. And one of the people who is thought hardest about all this is Nick Bostrom, who wrote the, the seminal book, Superintelligence. He says it's probably about 70 or 80 years, and that seems about right to me. Towards the end of the century, maybe at the end of the century, who knows, we may all be sitting around in 2099, waiting for the ticking over of the clock and also the turning on of the first superintelligence. The idea that the superintelligence will be something we can turn on, existing in a box, cut off and under our control, 
is a highly controversial claim. It is perhaps more likely to emerge uncontrolled and unexpected and to be a less well-defined and singular entity. In truth, just as what comes after the emergence of a superintelligence is impossible to predict, what form it will take is also largely beyond our understanding. Nevertheless, it is very tempting to speculate on the potential benefits and risks such an event may augur. Here's Callum Chase again, who imagines some very positive upsides, but also serious dangers. Although there are very serious risks, and we must take them seriously, there are huge upsides to the presence on this planet of a superintelligence. If you have a superintelligence on the planet, it could solve all our current problems including things like war, poverty and death. So if it's true that we are likely to see the arrival of a superintelligence later this century, and I think that that is very plausible, then there are probably people alive today who will never need to die. And that is one of the most amazing things I've ever heard. It just blows my mind. And I can't understand why everybody else in the world isn't jumping up and down with excitement about that prospect. The idea that my son might live forever, I think it's just great. So lots of upsides. However, there are lots of downsides. And and here are a couple. If we create a superintelligence which doesn't like us, which might be quite a rational decision, it might look at us and think, you're making a hell of a mess of this planet. I'm going to get rid of you all. Or it might just aesthetically find us unappealing. So this is the, the Terminator scenario. You know, you create a very powerful computer system. It's called Skynet. It wakes up, takes a look at humans, and within a couple of nanoseconds decides, no, you've got to go. And it wipes us out. And of course, the only problem with the Terminator movies, well, there's two problems. The first is that after the first two, they were all terrible. But the big problem with those movies is that the human race survived more than about five minutes, which is highly implausible. So we create a superintelligence which hates us, we're toast. If we create a superintelligence which likes us, but doesn't understand us very well, we could be toast as well. So, for instance, it might take a look at us and think, I really like you humans. You created me. I'm forever grateful. I'm going to make sure you're all safe and you all live forever. So I'm going to solve your DNA shortcomings, which mean that you're mortal. I'm going to put you all in coffins. I'm going to put you all into a trance. I'm going to feed you intravenously and pump you full of heroin. You'll all be happy. You'll live forever. You won't need to cross the road and you won't die. Great. Only we wouldn't think that was such a good outcome. So... There's lots of ways that a superintelligence which doesn't like us or doesn't understand us very well could be really damaging for us. Therefore, the most important job possibly ever, and almost certainly this century, is for humanity to figure out how to make sure that the first superintelligence, and if they're going to be more than one, the first few, really, really like humans and understand us better than we understand ourselves. Because we don't understand ourselves very well. We we collectively and even individually don't know what we want. We don't know what our goals are. So that's the job to, to find out to find out how to make AI safe. And to be honest, it's way beyond my pay grade. Uh, there are four organisations working on the project: Future of Humanity Institute in Oxford, the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk in Cambridge, uh, which shortens its name very helpfully to Caesar, the Future of Life Institute in MIT and Harvard. I think it's it's northeast America anyway. And the MIRI, which is the Machine Intelligence Research Institute, used to be the Singularity Institute, California. I think it's in Berkeley. So those four existential risk organizations have very, very clever people who are working on the AI safety problem. And the good news is we've probably got quite a few decades to solve it. Not everyone agrees that we have as long or even sufficient time to resolve this challenge. Eliezer Yudkowsky from MIRI, the last organization Callum mentioned there, famously thinks we have lost this race to control AI. He sees the rate of AI development as moving so much quicker than the rate of AI safety research that we are heading to certain catastrophe. Existential risk historian Emil Torres now explains why this issue of getting a superintelligent being to act in our interests is so challenging. The idea behind you know, artificial superintelligence is, and actually this is the reason it's so dangerous, the way I think about it is, is the following. You can make a sort of rough distinction between agents and tools, right? And through a lot of technologies in the past, you could classify as tools. So, you know, when I pick up a wheelbarrow, it, it does what I tell it to do by virtue of me pushing it forward, lifting it up, and, and so on. On the other hand, artificial superintelligence would be an agent in its own right. By definition, it would be a single algorithm 
that could outperform, vastly outperform humans in every cognitive domain of interest. So this could pose a uh, danger because since it is an agent, it might be very difficult to control. And even if it does what you tell it to do, it might do that thing in a way that just accidentally, as an unintended consequence, wreaks havoc in the world and perhaps even destroys us. And there are all sorts of examples of this where people go through and imagine like some, you know, some final goal that advanced AI system is given. And then you imagine all the ways that it could achieve that goal while destroying the biosphere or destroying humanity, something of that sort. What you ultimately want is then an agent that acts like a tool. So you want it to be fully agential on the one hand, but also fully controllable, just like tools are, just like a, a wheelbarrow is. So that way you can give it a task like cure cancer. And then by virtue of its agential properties, it can go and solve that problem on its own. That's what makes it unique. It makes it different than you know a wheelbarrow or most other technologies we have. But at the same time, you want it to be a tool in that it does exactly what you tell it to do in a way that doesn't result in you know, some kind of bad uh, outcome. So the, the idea of value alignment is fundamentally about how do you create an agent that is able to solve problems in every cognitive domain of interest better than humans, but still behaves like a tool. So we, you know, we tell it to cure cancer and it doesn't just destroy the biosphere by converting the Amazon rainforest and so on and so on into vast laboratories. You know, well, we don't want it to do that. So that, that's the, that is the outstanding challenge that artificial superintelligence uh, presents. The other thing I, I would mention is that the that distinction between tools and agents, I know that's problematic. I mean, it's it's very like value neutral thesis. So <laughs> I would totally problematize that distinction, but I feel like it's just kind of useful for trying to understand what the, the problem is. So the idea of value alignment is that the behavior of the artificial superintelligence is determined or constrained by a certain set of values. And those values are aligned with what are often referred to as our human values. So one aspect of the value alignment problem is to figure out what our values are in the first place. <laughs> you know, what is it that we want in the world? It seems like well, we might have to solve some of the most fundamental perennial problems mm. in philosophy in order to successfully create a value-aligned superintelligence. It's been two and a half millennia since Plato. We've been struggling with these fundamental philosophical conundrums, and there's no reason to expect that we'll solve them at any point in the future. And yeah, this is partly why the control problem seems to be a really dangerous issue. Perhaps conceptualizing the so-called value alignment problem as a problem at all is a mistake to begin with. Problems can be solved. But the question of human meaning, human flourishing, is a different kind of question entirely. There is no one answer. Transhumanist thinker James Hughes now relates how bioethical discourse had engaged with this very question of the good life with a rationalist, problem-solving mindset. Predictably, no progress was made. About 15 years ago, there was a debate within bioethics about moral enhancement, what it would mean to make people morally better. And most of the people who came into that debate, a lot of British philosophers, um, were people who had a long consequentialist, rationalist, analytical approach to philosophy, not an approach that was grounded in Aristotle or religious traditions, the kind of virtue traditions. And so they would say things like, well, why don't we just make everybody smarter because all you really need to be a better person is understand the good, and then you'll, you'll do the good. And it's like, well, that idea has been proposed before, and you know, there are a lot of reasons to suspect that that may not be the case. And others said, well, why don't we just make everybody nice, and then everybody, if everyone's nice, then all the problems would be solved. It's like, well, it turns out that if you make everybody nice, it actually enhances group solidarity in acts of, of group violence. So it may not be actually as simple-minded as that. And so 
What I found very useful in that debate is to say, look, the virtue traditions, Buddhism, Christianity, Confucianism, etc., as well as contemporary virtue ideas and the uh, positive psychology movement and contemporary moral neuroscience are showing that there's a complex balance of traits and characteristics and virtues that make up what we consider to be the good personality or the good character. There's a golden mean for everything. You know, you don't want to be devoid of empathy, but you don't want to have so much empathy that you're constantly suffering because of other people. And so there's this golden mean there. And the, the balances come about through interaction. You know, the compassion tempers the intelligence. The intelligence tempers the compassion. So I think there's, yeah, there's a lack of systemic and ecological thinking in, in these domains. In the policy domain around transhumanism, I think you can mainly see that, for instance, with the threat of artificial general intelligence or superintelligence, I have long argued that the debates that we're having today and the structures that we have in place today to deal with cyber theft, cyber crime, the debates that we're having about can artificial intelligence detect hate speech on Facebook or Twitter, the debates about what the legitimate constraints on the internet should be in context of group violence, all of these kinds of things are uh, debates that set up the preconditions for us dealing with increasingly sophisticated forms of cyber life, which may or may not be designed. It may be that some forms of cyber life are released bioterrorism, uh, cyber terrorism, and others are just things that happen through the evolutionary process of the internets. If you think that if you're singularly focused and reductionist, that the problem is going to be that there's going to be this box, and this box is going to wake up, and then it's going to try to take over the world, uh, without thinking about the complex of all the things that people are doing around the internet and inf information architecture and cybersecurity in the world, then you're really not going to come up with very useful analysis of what the problem is or solutions. So yeah, I do think that kind of systemic awareness is, is key. James Hughes then advocates for a holistic understanding of superintelligence. Focusing on a singular intelligent box and its intentions may be far too reductive to aid awareness of the risks and complex relations in which increasingly powerful artificial intelligence is embedded. When thinking about intelligence, we tend to see it from a very human perspective. We tend to assume a singular entity, most usually with a conscious will of its own, and we associate intelligence with tasks, the ability to solve problems. Here's Callum Chase on why we tend to compare artificial intelligence with human intelligence. Why are we the yardstick at all for such a potentially alien process? We are the creature which dominates the planet because of our intelligence. It's not really so much our rational thinking, actually. It's more of our ability to collectively agree to believe in things that we know aren't true. And I'll just leave that hanging there because that takes a long time, a while to unpack. But it is our intelligence which makes us so powerful. But we, because we're human-centric, um, that's a for forgivable lapse on our part, um, we think that, you know, overtaking humans at being human, intelligent, that, that's an important landmark. It's also important because we can assume that at that point it becomes more capable than us and it's a hell of a threat or a hell of a friend. If the machine is kind of at 90% of human level at all significant tasks, then we should still be able to outsmart it. We should be able to control it. Once it's a thousand times smarter than we are in all respects, we can't control it. You know, in the way that the future of chimpanzees on this planet depends entirely on what humans do. They have no say in their future. Uh, we will be in the same boat with regards to superintelligence. That's why that's a, <laughs> an important landmark. There's also the consideration that it may be that once a machine gets to that level, gets to AGI, it will become conscious. Now, if we don't know this, it's a reasonable supposition that consciousness is a byproduct of sufficiently complicated and advanced intellection, but we don't know it. And if it does become conscious, it's more likely to be able to and want to change its goals. If it's not conscious, it might just continue to accept the goals we programmed into it. So that's an important consideration. It's important to bear in mind that consciousness is a very different thing from intelligence, and that maybe they march hand in hand, or maybe they don't. There's a couple of important points Callum raises here. First relates to our human-centric conceptualization of artificial intelligence. 
Whilst Callum considers this a forgivable lapse, as we shall see later on, this is a lapse we probably can't afford. Putting ourselves at the centre of everything has long been morally problematic, as our series on the Anthropocene suggests, but it also leads to a misguided understanding of the complex world in which we are embedded. The second vital point is that there are important differences between consciousness or sentience and intelligence. The mixing up of these ideas is perhaps in part down to that human-centric thought. Our intelligence, rather than our consciousness, is often viewed as that which makes us special and is regularly drawn upon to justify our self-ascribed hierarchical place above the rest of nature. The prospect of a super-intelligent but entirely non-sentient machine taking over evolution on our planet and creating a future of a joyless but super-powerful information processor in place of the richness of nature seems bleak. Here's Beth Singler, who considers how the muddy waters of intelligence, consciousness and cognition overlap and how we came to view them as we do in the case of AI. We have these overlapping terms, intelligence, sentience, consciousness, and for some people we get into the realm of soul, spirit. There's various terms that seem very interchangeable in different contexts. And I think it's really useful every time we're having these discussions to go back to who gets to set up the priorities for that discussion. And when it came to artificial intelligence and the definition of intelligence in particular in that domain, the origins of the field came down to one conference in 1956 with 10 men who said, this is what we think artificial intelligence should be. They came from lots of other fields, cyberneticists and philosophers of mind and, and mathematicians and so forth. But they thought we're going to create this thing called artificial intelligence. It's going to be able to do all the things that we think belong to the domain of human intelligence, but in an artificial scenario. And they actually thought they'd solve this uh, over the course of one summer. So, yeah. Very ambitious, but it was it was defined by their understanding of intelligence. And there's a great quote by Robert Walensky where he says, you know, these founding fathers of AI, they thought about what it meant to be intelligent. They thought them, they were intelligent people. So they thought about what they could do. And they thought, well, we can solve theorems and play chess. So if it can solve theorems and play chess, it must be intelligent. So we've got that very early shaping very anthropocentric, perhaps even quite gender-centric as well, and race-centric as well. There were 10 white men. A view of intelligence and where intelligence can go, and a lot of the current conversation still is very shaped by that anthropocentrism. So the notion of intelligence is a bit more complex than it seems on the surface. And AI research has a legacy of a certain problem-solving conception of intelligence rooted in a particular worldview. The fact that human intelligence is bound up with consciousness means it is a different type of thing to AI, and consciousness is an all-round much trickier concept even than intelligence. David Pierce rejects the idea that computers will ever be conscious. For technical reasons, I don't think classical digital computers can ever support sentience, subjectively bound subjects of experience. So subjects of experience like Humans, biological humans with nervous systems, have a computational functional advantage that our machines lack. Can an AI ever be considered an artificial general intelligence, and beyond that a so-called full-spectrum superintelligence, if it lacks consciousness? How can it do all the things that an adult human can do if it can't experience in the way that we do? David Pierce outlines the evolutionary advantages that consciousness bound within a single entity offers us. I don't think that classical digital computers are ever going to become full-spectrum superintelligences. There are all kinds of things that a classical digital computer can't do. Classical digital computers have no idea of the nature of consciousness. They're not capable of phenomenal binding, whereas you and I can discuss the nature and varieties of consciousness. A classical digital zombie has no notion of a unitary self or the vast number of different state spaces of consciousness that's possible to explore. Let's just consider a very, what might seem quite a narrow issue, the issue of phenomenal binding. 
neuroscience, science doesn't actually understand why consciousness exists at all. What is its functional role, let alone how it happens? Yet you and I are right now capable of running phenomenally bound world simulations. Right now, you and I are perceiving multiple perceptual objects within our world simulations in real time, and they are apprehended by a unitary self, the unity of perception. And this is extraordinarily computationally functionally powerful. One only has to look at syndromes in which phenomenal binding breaks down. The so-called simultanagnosia. Someone with simultanagnosia can only see one object at once. And imagine how cognitively debilitating that would be on the African savanna. Or someone with cerebral achidotopsia or motion blindness can't actually perceive motion. So within their world simulation, a car will be in the distance, then will be a bit nearer, then will be right upon them, and then will have passed, but they can't perceive motion. Or to use another example, people with florid schizophrenia have no unitary self as you and I do. And yeah, phenomenal binding is tremendously adaptive and fitness enhancing. Much harder question is how we do it. Why aren't we just micro-experiential zombies? I.e., if, as naive neuroscanning suggests, uh, we are 86 billion-odd discrete membrane-bound neurons, even if consciousness is fundamental, why aren't we micro-experiential zombies? Micro-experiential zombies would rapidly tend to get eaten or, or starve on the African savanna. And how biological robots are capable of phenomenal binding and running real-time world simulations is unexplained. Yet consciousness isn't some kind of puzzle that can be quarantined. It is absolutely central to intelligence. And summarizing that vast word salad, we can do things that digital computers can't. Moreover, we we can incorporate programmable digital computers within ourselves so that it's possible with the right neurochip. You can yeah, beat Casper off a chess. You can do anything that a classical digital computer can do incorporated in, your, in yourself. So I'm skeptical there is going to be some kind of zombie putsch <laughs> in which the machines take over. That's not to downplay the potential risks of artificial intelligence, which are many and varied, but I think it more likely that artificial intelligence is going to be used by humans for their own nefarious purposes, rather than that our machines are going, going to try and take power away from us and convert us into paper clips or something. This last point brings home the problem of AI safety as being too narrow in focus. The aim cannot just be to design an AI that isn't going to accidentally destroy us all because of some instrumental goal that runs out of control. We need to think much more about how AI is integrated within human societies. What are the implications of all humans having access to potentially dangerous forms of knowledge, such as how to manipulate people or build potent weapons? What are the implications of certain small groups of individuals having privileged access to such powerful tools above everyone else? Just as consciousness is a much more complex and challenging question than intelligence, AI ethics and its relation to human flourishing, or indeed the flourishing of nature at large, are much more complex and challenging questions than simple AI safety. We heard earlier that David believes full-spectrum superintelligence will not come in the form of a vastly powerful AI, but rather a genetically enhanced biological descendants, supplemented perhaps with forms of digital technology within us. Integral to this belief is the import of consciousness as a vital element of intelligence, and the belief that computers will never gain consciousness. Moreover, for David, anything that can claim to be intelligent, or certainly a full-spectrum superintelligence, must be able to empathise. For what is intelligence worth if it cannot understand the notions of pleasure and pain? It is this ability to feel that should be at the apex of concern, according to David Pierce. Now, naively, one might imagine full-spectrum superintelligence is, is just kind of an 
off the scale IQ, a kind of super Asperger, and bearing in mind the extreme male brain theory of autism spectrum disorder, this tremendously powerful calculating machine. But I think this conception of superintelligence is naive. The part of superintelligence, and I stress a part that's far richer, involves essentially perspective taking, cooperative problem solving. What drove the evolution of distinctively human intelligence was in part our ability for cooperative problem solving, our mind reading prowess, perspective taking. Social cognition is profoundly cognitively demanding, but I think we can anticipate that full spectrum in superintelligence will have this superhuman capacity for empathy and understanding. A full-spectrum superintelligence would be able to access all possible first-person perspectives and act accordingly. And just as a mirror-touch synesthete wouldn't wantonly harm you, it would be like harming himself or herself, full-spectrum superintelligence with this empathetic capacity is likely to be able to understand other perspectives, including the perspectives of humble minds, people with radically different value and belief systems. And this is likely, I think, to lead to a revolution, not just in morality, but also decision theoretic rationality. David's argument is that computers are not likely to gain consciousness and perceive themselves through that consciousness as a singular entity, that is, a phenomenally bound experiential being. As such, they will be unable to function anything like a human with will, self-interest and an overinflated sense of importance. However, the many capacities that AI does display will aid humans in expressing their will and self-interest and will likely also be used in the service of that excessive self-importance. Therefore, the computers need not turn against us to become our foe. They will simply mirror and amplify the selfish and destructive tendencies humans exhibit in modern society, unless we can become much better versions of ourselves. For that reason, David sees dark days ahead in the short term, even though he holds out hope of a resplendent universe of radiant bliss in the long term. More on that in the next episode. So, is it time for a moral revolution for humanity? Do we need to rethink how we structure societies before AI holds that mirror up to us in our current state? One aspect of this may relate to our treatment of animals and nature at large. If we can no longer justify our superiority on account of our intelligence, as there may soon be an entity that is much more intelligent than us, does sentience become the overriding factor of moral importance? Here's David questioning how sentience manifests itself in ourselves and other animals. Non-human animals, most of them are probably less sentient than humans. A few may even be more sentient. Uh, something like a long-finned pilot whale, for example, not merely has a larger limbic system, but a neocortex that is almost twice the human size. Clearly, there is something special about humans, probably primarily our capacity for, for, for generative syntax. But nonetheless, though a lot of us have this kind of dimmer switch metaphor of, of consciousness with humans at the top and something like insects at the bottom, nonetheless, this dimmer switch model is simplistic because it's notable that the most intense forms of conscious experience are also phylogenetically the most primitive unbearable agony, despair, panic, or orgasmic bliss intense and yet they're not involving higher thought whereas if you look at the distinctive kinds of consciousness that humans experience something like generative syntax it's the phenomenology of generative syntax is incredibly subtle and elusive or let's say the ability to do calculus the phenomenology there is extremely Thin. And if one has some kind of utilitarian 
ethic that prioritizes the pleasure pain axis yeah sure it's it's fantastic instrumentally if someone is a, is a prodigy or a mathematical genius but what actually matters is sentience and the capacity to suffer and i think a, a full spectrum superintelligence would recognize this I'll just add one proviso here that when it comes to talking about the nature of superintelligence, there is a big temptation to conceive post-human superintelligence as some kind of idealized version of oneself. And it may well be that post-human superintelligence is unimaginably alien. An unimaginably alien intelligence. How do we start to contend with such a notion? Here's James Hughes reflecting on some of the implications of intelligences coming into being that are radically different to our own. I do think that there's technologies which would pose those singularity type questions of, after this, we really don't know what's going to happen. And one of those is uploading. If we actually were able to record human consciousnesses and put them in virtual environments on the web, in the first place, you may not even run at the same clock speed as ordinary human beings. It may be that, you know, a minute to you is you know, 100 years for us or vice versa. And that would just make us go in different directions as a civilization, but also your capacity for having a different mental architecture, different kinds of norms and values would be enormously different. So I do think that there are some qualitatively different kinds of enhancements that we could adopt. For Beth Singler, this process of thinking about an alien intelligence is helpful because it can disrupt the human-centric ways of thinking about intelligence that may lead us astray in our conceptualizations of AI and superintelligence. It's useful to start thinking about non-human intelligences. We are surrounded by non-human intelligences. We have a lot of biases against them. Also, other than human intelligences, what it means to have agency as an AI perhaps relates more to, I like Latour's actor network theory as a way of understanding agency in artificial entities. Other people have other approaches. Some will be flat out denying that there's anything like agency for AI. I think it's much more enmeshed with human agency, so that's why I'm more of a Latourian. But some will go further and say, no, actually, we're seeing the beginnings of AI agency, and it can do and choose and understand particular things. And that language, again, is founded on anthropocentrism and the limitations of our language. When Beth speaks of Bruno Latour here and actor network theory, it's worth pausing to unpack this a little. In part, due to the way our consciousness works, that singular, unitary perspective outlined by David Pierce, and this feeling that we have free choice, agency, that we can express our will, these things lead us to underestimate the extent to which our own mind, our own sense of agency, are embedded and enmeshed with multiple other processes, and that our will is actually constructed by and shared with all these things going on around us. We are fundamentally relational beings, embedded in rich and complex networks that form and mediate our ways of thinking. It may feel like we make up our own minds, but maybe our minds themselves are made up by the complex interaction of material reality that in no way adheres to this unitary feeling of consciousness. When we think of computer intelligence, we are often more apt to understand that cognition is distributed and exists within networks, but we still try to frame AI as a singular entity rather than a distributed system of cognition with no easily identifiable hard boundaries a system that's tied up with human will, in which neither is entirely separable from the other. All these misconceptions embed themselves in the construction of the technology itself and our perceptions of it. Here's Beth Singler again on the implications of all of this. It's how that shaping conversation then shapes the technology is also interesting. That If we've got a particular view of what intelligence is, that's going to push the agenda in particular ways. The reason why I think OpenAI's chat GPT is so popular is because it is fluent in language and you know, that fluency in language and that popularity is leading people to see it having more agency than it actually has. So if our bias in our definition of intelligence is based on language, then of course we're going to see in that direction, but perhaps speculatively, 
AGI might not come through a large language model. It may come through another form entirely and be completely unrecognizable. Let's go into a complete sci-fi domain. It may not communicate with us. It may not have anthrocentric capabilities at all. We may not even recognize it. So there's that possibility as well. Now we turn to Braden Allenby, co-author with Daniel Sarowitz of the fantastic book The Techno-Human Condition. Brad also insists that we need to rid ourselves of our tendency to think of intelligence in human-like terms. What we are building is already a new system of cognition and thus a new world. We are part of a new machine ecology comprised of over 425 million servers, more than 50 billion interconnected objects, up to a trillion sensors, and artificial intelligence is fundamental to the integration of these systems. This is already a cognitive architecture vastly outstripping the capacity of human intelligence to adequately conceptualize. Perhaps this already is a kind of superintelligence. Yeah, the first thing we need to do is get rid of the bias in favor of human cognition as somehow being the model of all cognition. The idea that if the internet suddenly wakes up one day and and yawns, it's going to think the same way we do. That's just crazy. Why should it? Human cognition is augmented by a whole set of biases and heuristics, and they're not there just casually. They're not a bug. They're a feature. They're the only way we can function in a very complex world. Our brain is incredibly powerful, but it fails given the complexity of the world. And so you turn that around and you say, okay, what happens when you begin seeing cognition at levels you can't access? What does that even look like? Those are very deep questions. And the problem is we haven't thought about them because it so cuts against the grain of most of today's assumptions. I mean, if even if you read the literature on AI, it talks about AI as if in some way it was just a really smart Gates, right? But it's not just a really smart person. It's something very, very different. And the assumption that it should act the way we do is a very poor one. I mean, for example, why do we have emotions? A primary reason is that emotions enable us to integrate and cut through a lot of very complex information very quickly. Fear, brilliant. Anger, brilliant. What does it do? I mean, you may be facing a very complex situation and suddenly something triggers your anger. It may or may not be the correct reaction, but it's the correct reaction often enough that it's become built into us because of evolution. So our emotions are evolutionary ways of simplifying decision-making in a complex world where at best we would never be able to come up with a solution quickly enough to respond. You know, you see a tiger in a bush, you go, oh my God, you don't think about it. You don't sit there and think for five minutes about what the tiger is. You take off and, you know, you're probably not going to get away, but, you know, kismet, right? So what the emotion is doing is triggering immediate response because of the limitations in human cognition. Now, I'm the internet. I'm the internet augmented by all kinds of cognition being built in to all of the various pieces of the internet of things and of the networks and of the computers. All of this is coming together in ways that I can't begin to fathom. And and why should I think like you? Because my limitations are not your limitations. You need emotion. I don't need emotion. What do I need emotion for? I'm quick enough. I've got enough capacity. So we assume our limitations into a system where that may not be valid. The point is that there is nothing that I know of that says that cognition is something that was framed for once and for all in the human. Cognition is an evolving process. And here's where you get a little bit into into sci-fi, so you need to be a little careful. But if you think about it, we're all racing around the world, building 5G, building new computer networks, building more powerful systems, putting in more software, building more learning systems. Teslas talk to each other through a centralized database. They learn from each other. Jet engines do. 
all of these technologies are learning from each other. Human oversight of this learning process is increasingly superficial at best. All of this is going on. What are we really doing? What we're really doing, if you want to get flamboyant about it, is we're building the mind of God from the inside out. That's what we're doing. And the idea that we're going to be able to comprehend that? No, that's simply not going to happen. So perhaps we are building the mind of God without any real understanding of the implications. Beth, Emil, and David remind us again that AI is already reflecting back to us certain values that are held by those involved in its construction. This God we may be making is not a neutral God, and the process of its construction is inherently political. Superintelligence ultimately does not necessitate superbenevolence, and it cannot enable us to simply transcend ethical questions that are a different type of issue to the problem-solving, information-processing superintelligence we seem to be creating. Absolutely, I think our biases towards things that look and sound like us And historically, we can think of examples when we've had biases towards things that look and sound like us and how we've treated those entities and people that aren't like us. That that really does shape the field of technology and where we're going. Thinking about the disparities between the, you know, again, the eschatological aims of transhumanism in perfecting the human and what that says about its vision of the perfect human as well. And again, as we said with intelligence, who gets included and who gets excluded and that's A lot of the time in a broader transhumanist conversation about therapeutics and enhancement, people with disabilities or different intellectual interests and areas or neurodivergent people are left out of the conversation. And that the strongest voices in transhumanism, the ones that people are more familiar with, are predominantly from these very specific academic and cultural contexts and not engaging with people from other contexts as well. I think as an anthropologist, it's more interesting to look at the history as well, to think about why we describe intelligence in particular ways, who's included, who's excluded, who do we think we'll include and exclude in the future? And that obviously has ethical and societal implications. This is a bit problematic because overwhelmingly, the researchers who are working on the value alignment problem are white men. And so as a result, you're going to get, you know, a picture that is skewed in certain ways by virtue of the fact that, you know, this community is very homogenous, not just in terms of race and gender, but ideologically as well. It's really valuable to keep returning to unpacking these ideas and not just uncritically accept that the perfection of the human as a concept doesn't come with lots of difficulties and problems. It sounds aspirational and wonderful to imagine a transhumanist glorious future but you know who's being left behind and who's not being included is a very important part of that conversation and when it comes to artificial intelligence before we even get to a transhumanist future what are the algorithmic biases that are already specifically now impacting people's lives we don't have to get into a far-flung transhumanist future where people are left out people are being left out now so we need to be thinking about it The pleasure, pain, access discloses the world's inbuilt metric of value and disvalue. And I find it very difficult to conceive future of post-human superintelligence that doesn't involve the pleasure, pain, access, or rather one particular dimension of that uh, access uh, gradients of superhuman bliss. Because without the pleasure, pain, access, without hedonic tone, nothing matters. What these last points echo is that no amount of superintelligence can transcend ethical questions. What matters to us may be meaningless or valueless for an entity that is vastly in advance of our cognitive capabilities. But our sense of value may be vastly more important to us than its intelligence. Ethics are not a problem to be solved. They are particular perspectival, plural, irreconcilable. Intelligence may be harnessed as a tool we use to instrumentalize the ethics we wish to see enacted in the world, though because it will also be accessible to countervailing worldviews with different interests, ethics and identities, in the complex interaction of competition, what will come to pass may not be any one group's intentions or aims. 
That's it for today. I'd like to thank my guests Callum Chase, David Pierce, Emile Torres, James Hughes, Beth Singler and Braden Allenby. Thanks also to Matt Black and Darren Sangita for the music in the podcast. Check out their digital album, New Directions and Psychedelic Abstraction. Much gratitude also goes to the brilliant Rob Sell and Paddy Jervis from Torch and Compass for their tireless work on the podcast. Matt Tams for his exquisite A to Z artwork and Paul McCrudden, the other half of Into the Future. Next week, we'll be focusing on the last of the three supers, super well-being, and thinking about the pleasure-pain axis that David just mentioned. See you next time.